I'm Andrew Sherman. I'm a Texas transplant who has always been in the pursuit of art as a career. I've played in bands, pursued an acting career in Hollywood, but I found it behind the lens of a camera here in Dallas, Texas. I was born in New York, I've lived in Chicago, Los Angeles, Austin, but I love Dallas. There's a magical artistic scene in Dallas that mostly goes unnoticed to the outside world. This podcast is focused on what makes it so special and the people who make it thrive artistically. If you don't live here, and even if you do, you might not have heard of them. This is the Dallas Famous Podcast. This week on the Dallas Famous Podcast, I'm trying something different. I recently wrote my first non-concert review article for the Dallas Observer on the state of jam bands in Dallas. First off, I was blown away by the support over this article. When I take a photo, I can tell if it's good. With my writing, not so much, so thanks for all the love. Being my first article, I got very excited and did five interviews. After I had them all, I realized I probably had maybe two or three articles, so I had to leave most of the interviews out. I guess that's probably how it normally goes first time. Then I remembered I have a podcast. So today's episode is a semi-cohesive deeper dive into the jam band scene here in Dallas. Hope it doesn't get too confusing, but we have Kenny Withrow, guitarist from the New Bohemians, among many, many other musical projects, John LaRue, owner of Deep Elm Art Company, Michael Curvin, talent buyer and promoter of Time to Fly Music, which we've had on the show before, and the guys that I left out, Chad Kakuza, drummer of Spoonfed Tribe and a frequent member of Andy Frasco and the UN, and finally Leland Cratcher. Founding member of Trimore Mojo, as well as the solo project Plain Keys. Leland and the Mojo Boys were cool enough to let me use unreleased music for this episode, so there's a bonus too. Sit back and try to follow this mashup episode of the Dallas Jam Band scene this week on Dallas Famous. Here's Kenny Withrow. So first of all, what would be your definition of a jam band? A jam band, I think, is a good way to name an improvising rock band. That's what it's been for a long time. It's just like a good name for a like a rock band that jams a lot. Kind of started in the 60s. They didn't really call it jam bands. Everybody was jamming. Now it's sort of, you know, keeping that trip alive. You just kind of call it jam band, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of redundant to say that back when everybody jammed. <laughs> right. But now it's hybrid into, you know, now it's gotten electronic disco biscuits. That's what they're called, right? Yeah, I've followed a lot in the 90s. I followed a lot of the the hybrid jam bands that had machines in them and stuff like that. But, you know, it's usually a, a ways of I- improvising, you know, it's it, but, but generally it was rock. It's kind of hybrid, hybrided out a little bit. Here's John LaRue. Wow, that's a fun one. Uh, definition for a jam band is uh, a band that utilizes improvisation and live settings primarily i mean I, I think it's you know jam bands record jams as well um but i think that's a big part of it is is that improvisational conversation between musicians uh where you know a song that was written at three minutes can stretch out to six because of those uh opportunities to pass the the hat you know it's kind of a communal thing where where there's a musical conversation going on that exceeds the original concept of a song and doesn't necessarily have a scripted direction uh which is where you can get some really cool moments that don't exist otherwise you know they're they're fleeting so um jam band a band that creates those those fleeting moments and doesn't just play a scripted song 
as it was recorded the same way every time they approach it. Here's Leland Kratcher. That's a good question. Um, Jam Band to me is a band that is oriented there, whose live show and uh, and most comp, and mo most of their intention is um, predicated around improvisational composition. So it's not just getting up there and playing a song and then getting to like what would traditionally be a solo section and then just noodling on that for like an hour. That's that's what a lot of people think jam bands are. And I think that is that's the watered down, you know, young version. But a true jam band that is exploring that is a band that is focused on and primarily orients around improvisational composition. Here's Chad Kakuza. Oh, man. You know, you got to have uh you got to have a you got to have a few at least a handful of wooks in the crowd you know you got to have some <laughs> hats with some beads and some some uh what are they the pins you know you're going to be a lot of tie dye in the audience and then you're going to have uh at least you know one grateful dead cover per set cuz that's <laughs> pretty standard in the jam band scene you know okay uh no man i you know you got the jam band scene you know it's something that's it's it's uh kind of like i remember it uh, really coming into play for for me back in like the late '90s when you know you had your Grateful Dead, you had your Fish going and stuff like that. You had your widespread panics and stuff. And then I, you know, as a member of Spoonfed Tribe, you know, we always got put into that category of uh, jam band, which you know I think we were a little bit heavier and a little bit uh, not really jam band, but. Yeah, jam bands, you know, you're going to have your long guitar solos, you're going to have your 20-minute songs, you're going to have people dancing like crazy uh, in the audience, and, uh, you know, it's it's a very communal uh, part of the music scene, I believe. I think there's a huge community for that stuff, so. Here's Michael Curvin. You know, I mean, what the jam scene to me is in bands with some improvisation, bands that mesh different flavors of rock and roll extend their songs it's not just you know grateful debt it's it's more than that and then they maintain creative control on their product um you know that's one thing that kind of defines the jam scene in my opinion too is a lot of these upper echelon ones in the end they want to have their own record labels they control their merchandise and their 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 path you know versus having some record company or something do it for them kenny withrow like your group of friends, is that how the, the jam scene in Dallas, kind of the live kind of getting together and jamming out, is that kind of how that happened? Absolutely, yeah. Coming out of Arts Magnet High School, there were a lot of great players. Uh, Daryl Phillips, the, the bass player for Little Sister, Sister Seven, a lot of those people came from Arts Magnet. I think Patrice, yeah, Patrice Pike, of course. And uh, Daryl Phillips, he's, you know, we had a group of friends known as the Munch Puppies. In, in high school, which uh, Aaron Comas, John Bush, Alan Emmert from, from Brave Combo, Danny O'Brien, the trumpet player from Brave Combo. I mean, a lot of a lot of badass players came from that group. Uh, Texas Slim Sullivan, the blues player, uh, Gerald Arrigori, uh just a lot of very successful musicians. They came from anywhere. They were our group of friends. And what happened, and the reason I mentioned all this is it because, yeah, we started doing jamming at Club Dada. Club Dada, there was there was music every night of the week, you know. So New Bohemians, we used to play under a, an assumed name. There's a lot of a lot of these are on archive.org, but we would play under an assumed name and just make up shit all night and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And 
And so jamming and things like that and 10 hands, they were certainly, they had their own brand of jamming, but more percussion oriented, but definitely freaking jammers. And uh, Dallas kind of became a bit of a jam scene. There was a, see, Beal Asserta, and what are the other guys' name? Ability Ensemble. Uh, those guys were outrageous, good musicians. There's Buddy Muhammad, who was a bass player, and Jamal Muhammad, who's known as more of a Dunbeck player. But they play all sorts of instruments, and uh, they had a something called Belody Ensemble, and uh, they would play at Club Dada, and it was just outrageous, like Arabic fusion jazz. You know, it was anyway. There was a lot of jam going on in the eighties, any night of the week, and shit like that. But again, we didn't really call it jam band. We we jammed a lot. We've always jammed. You know, right. I yeah. I don't think they started calling it jam bands until somewhere in the nineties. I feel like, right. And like I said, I think that's just a, you know, it's like a way my other friends, you know, all the spin doctors and, you know, those guys, once the, uh, what was known as the, the horde tour. So that was kind of early nineties where the roots of a lot of that jam music, uh, blues traveler, spin doctors, fish, shit, all of them widespread. Oh, and widespread. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were definitely. Anyway, so a lot of that stuff, and they even had a tour, and they went a few years, and that was that was a lot of the jam scene. In the 90s, when electronica came around, a lot of things chilled out, and, and when grunge hit, a lot of shit went underground, especially jam music. I lived in Seattle in the 90s, and there were there were jam bands, a band called Tough Mama, and I jammed with a lot of those guys, and there, there was jam music around, but it kind of went underground a little bit. Now it's a lot of that, and, it, you know, soon you know it's going to transition you know kids that were raised on jam music you know what i'm saying that generation that's going to come around you know that, that that were kids when i first started playing with forgotten space are they're going to start forming bands that aren't grateful dead and jam music is i hope at least and it's going to be kind of a, a thing but it's going to hybrid into something we haven't seen before i hope I feel like it's going that way already, for sure. I mean, because there's bands that I cover and everyone's like, this is a jam band. And like, so my first thought is Fish and Dead. And then it's not really anything like that, but it's definitely a jam and it's definitely the same, that same structure. So, I mean, I feel like it's changing. I don't know what you would call it yet, but. Um, right. So I just trying to get the history. Um, so you're saying kind of like the combination of you guys are already doing this jam and the Horde Tour kind of, is that, did it kind of like ignite the scene in a way? Like locally here? Well, like oh, locally. locally here. Well, that's yeah. kind of having a national jam scene. So in, in in Dallas, so I had moved to Seattle around that time and live music chilled for a bit, you know, so that that the the jam scene that was happening with New Bohemians jamming a lot and just sort of calling jams. There was uh, you know, an off spins from New Bohemians. Matt was always putting together a band. There's a band called The Dudes that with with Matt and Anyway, there were that that scene kind of started to chill when Deep Ellum started to chill out when Electronica became a thing, and uh, a lot of the kids were going to warehouses and not clubs as much, and stuff really dried up, you know, in in Deep Ellum for a bit. I mean, a lot, you know. Uh, the dead thing was happening, though. But anyway, there was it's that all you know started with what a long strange trip it's been. Walstib that started at RCs. As kind of an acoustic thing it sort of became a happening 88 89 then i started to hear about it around 1990 i think uh then it filtered over into club dada and my good friend scott parkin thought of the name the dead thing 
and that's where Walstead would play. This guy, Sam Burkhart, who's still around, guitar player. Scott Johnson was one of the early players. Wendy, Chuck Spurlock, and anyway, a lot of a lot of players early on. That's where I actually met Scott. He was had a big mohawk and was jumping around playing bass in the early Walstead. So that was huge. The Dead Thing became this big event on Saturdays where gobs of people came. Musicians were paid great. People really drank in those days. <laughs> people, uh, bartender Chrissy, I don't know, uh, she had a little bar on the inside and jello shot. You know, this was still this coming out of the 80s and jello shots and just shit like that. People would get hammered. It was really wildly successful. They would play inside and the whole backyard was full and the whole inside was full. Eventually they would let people sell t-shirts and you know, it was a big scene. It was a, it was a huge scene that went on for a while. I eventually joined that with Scott before we moved to Seattle. John Bush played drums, some Chuck Spurlock and uh, Scott was playing bass. Some. Then he moved to guitar. Bob played some bass and, you know, stuff like that, the dead thing. So that was the jam scene for quite a while. Even after I came back from Seattle, they had a whole, you know, the dead thing had a, it, the name of the band became the dead thing. And they had a rotating, you know. John LaRue. I don't remember like there being a scene specifically when, you know, the first real jam band that I ever saw in Dallas, as far as, you know, some of the people would recognize was Fish. Uh, and I've been listening to them for quite a while. I, I discovered them in boarding school uh, in the early 90s. And uh, when I came back to Dallas, they were playing that, that 94 Bomb Factory show. Uh, and uh, 94, 95. Uh, come back. You got that epic tweezer. You were there for that. We did. We did. And and that was one of those shows, like, I told a whole lot of my friends, I'm like, you have to come with me to this show. And I think I ended up bringing about 10 people with me. And I know for a fact that three of those people went on to like follow those guys around, you know, on a summer tour. And so mm -hmm. they've seen their, their fair share of shows. So it definitely made an impact on them uh, having never seen them. But that was really the first like foray into the jam band scene that I, I can recall uh, other than, you know, listening to like Stevie Ray Vaughan as a kid and, and these musicians that, that had the ability to solo, like you were saying, and, and, and take things in. Uh, different directions but with fish i don't feel like it's always a solo that makes it a jam there's so much collaborative stretching and communication of all right well this song is x number of measures let's go ahead and take it out another 10 measures in this one section uh and if it feels good let's keep going but you know if it doesn't you know if, if we're ready to transition i'll give you that look and then you know everyone else knows that that's the look that at the end of this measure we're going back into the the scripted thing or, or into the next song or whatever uh, so it was really one of the first times I saw a group of four musicians communicating like that on stage and whipping the crowd into a frenzy. You know, that, that, that was, was really exciting to see. I guess there was a void. So you, if I correct me if I'm wrong, you started the Facebook uh, Where It's At Dallas Jamily, which was essentially like a list of concerts that were happening. Yeah, so I would share a list via email with a bunch of my friends. Um, pretty much every month and just say, hey, what am I missing this month? You know, it was kind of the the gist of it to start with. And that started like, I mean, early 2000s when I came back to, to Dallas after college, uh, you know, going to see shows is always really a big part of, of my uh, personal joy and a lot of my friends as well. I had several friends that went to school at UT. So, you know, music scene obviously is huge there. 
they were obviously uh, instrumental in, in turning me on to new stuff that I'd never heard of. And being in Colorado, you know, I was assuming the string cheese incident when those guys first kind of started cutting their teeth. So sharing that kind of stuff was always exciting um, uh, amongst friends. Kind of like, you know, how did you find out about the last great restaurant that you went to? More than likely a friend told you, you know, it's that word of mouth thing. And one of my friends criticized me like, you know, this is great and all, but it sure is, uh, you know, a lot of work to keep up with month to month, you know, because people would add stuff and then I would revise the email and send out the list again. And uh, someone just said, hey, why don't you like put this someplace public where we can all see it? And I didn't really know what that looked like at the time. Uh, I wasn't into Facebook um, when I was doing all the, the, the original list. Uh, and then when my daughter was born, it just, you know, kind of seemed like a forced inevitability. Hair <laughs> 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 pictures and, and, you know, uh, that, that was pretty much it. It was like, once I got there, it's was like, Oh, there's, there's groups on here. Um, so it wasn't long after that, that, that the Jamley page really seemed to make a lot more sense. Uh, to put that together. And I started off with something smaller than that, that was just private. It was just those guys. And then they were like, why don't you make this, you know, public, why don't you make this where we can add more people to, I want to add this guy. Will you add this guy, this girl? And and that was pretty much it from there. I was like, cool. Well, let's just, let's make an actual joinable thing that kind of has some structure to it and keep the list in the same format because we were all, we we're all kind of all over the place with how we would put things together in that list format. Uh, but it's been a lot of fun. It's been really cool to see who, the big contributors are in that list uh, and to see this, the, the variety of things that people are into. Cause I think we have a lot of like-minded um, music fans in there, but like-minded doesn't mean like a narrow focus in this case, you see a really broad listing of stuff in that list. <laughs> Justin Bieber was on there right next to uh, the Roger Waters thing, you know, oh, so wow. you, you just have that, that interesting juxtaposition there. And somebody in that group was was stoked about the Justin Bieber thing. Like they wanted to go see that, you know, and, and I'm, I'm down. I would probably go watch that show too, just to see it, just to say like, yeah, I saw that kid perform. But I wish yeah. I'd seen him, you know, when he was 10 years younger, just to say I'd seen that. And then, you know, today's version. Sure. Um, but that's just because I like to see how things evolve and, and, and grow, especially the pop culture stuff. There's, there's so much out there that I think the lines are starting to get crossed more and more every day, which is great because we live in such a neat time where, where genres can be blended together from different time periods, different styles. Um, it, it really, it's like this great big music melting pot where you can take from anything and put it together. And as long as people dig it, like it's viable. What was it like when you first started in that scene here in Dallas specifically? Oh man. I mean, you know, Dallas was a, a real kind of a different spot for us because, you know, you would have almost like, a, you know, these hard rock metal kind of scene guys coming out. And uh, then you'd have, a, you know, your hippy dippy uh, skirt wearing peeps come out and all that stuff. So I I really thought it was just, uh, you know, I was a bit younger back then, of course, but uh, it's something that was kind of fresh to me. You know, I I really enjoyed the fact that everybody would come in, no matter who you were, and everybody was accepted and everybody sort of loved each other. And, uh, you know, everybody had a great time with each other. Absolutely. So wait, so would you say then that Spoonfed is not a jam band or what would you what would you say? 
Well, I'd say we are a jam band, but I mean, kind of on the heavier side. It was like uh, a lot of, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, there's the crunch in there with the distortion. There's the really heavy drums. There's a little bit of screaming going on. There's all kinds of wacky stuff. But yeah, granted, we did have uh, 10, 15 minute long jams and stuff. And uh, a lot of the same audience would come out to see us and then go see, you know, another jam band quote unquote uh, the next weekend or whatever so we just uh they didn't really know where to put us so we we got stuck in the jam band scene baby yeah gotcha <laughs> michael curvin i'm just trying to fill in some gaps of history um so okay so uh you come back to dallas are you booking bands right away yes Okay. Um, in 2006, when I came back, I um, started to book a little bit, especially when the Green Elephant moved over from where the Barley House is now. The Barley House used to be on Knox Henderson back in the day. And then they moved over to where the Green Elephant was, and they kind of pushed the Green Elephant out of there and over to the, what was called the Home Bar, which is where the Green Elephant is now. And so it happened to be right at that change, and the sound guy up there, Arthur, knew from Austin and from Dallas and such, and he got me booking the Wednesdays and Fridays. They were only open on Wednesdays and Fridays. Um, yeah, I helped navigate that drum jam that goes on over there all the time. Mm-hmm. I helped navigate that there. Oh wow! Um, back in the day when it was a when it was one block over on what was Yale now is SMU Boulevard. So yeah, I started that and then of course Mike and I were talking from the beginning at Granada and I used to book even nights into Granada like I put technically put Snarky Puppy's first show there in 2008 but with On The One the drummer from Carl Dixon's Tiny Universe and Grindy Styles Moving Matter Fatty Lumpkin and in 2007 and eight nine you know even some into there before granada theater got really well known i helped with some dates there even on fridays and saturdays and then as granada grew and it started to become really well known um those dates on fridays and saturdays i couldn't get anymore with local stuff you know because it was filled with touring talent and then we got pushed to like doing wednesdays thursdays or tuesdays sometimes and we did some of that for little bit and then even that eventually got pushed because of Granada's success and big shows and tour stuff coming through and then there was a time period too that we were able to put a lot of support acts into Granada for those big names you know sometimes Mm -hmm. and then over time that changed because a lot of the support stuff that's chosen at Granada isn't by the theater it's by the the big act itself so the support usually chosen by those acts a lot more now than in the past so it's been interesting to see that dynamic kind of change but yeah man in, in those early days definitely um and uh and so was it would you say like and like i mean was mike was a taper right was he a deadhead he was in his spreadhead um big time spreadhead me and him were both big time spreadheads take a lot of panic shows oh right okay and mike used to have cd world two of them one in addison and one there right on the corner man uh, where floyd's barbershop is pretty much at mockingbird and greenville and i was going down to college i was and i got to know the people at technophilia really well and i started managing that you know right around 
getting out of college right before I graduated, 1999, 2000. I used to come into town with crates of CDs, and me and Mike would trade back and forth. And, of course, Larry was coming in. You know, some of the jam scene in those days that was fun was Larry and the dead thing. Like, those were probably, I would say, for, like, your... And then there was Olo Spo for a little bit, right, which people will talk about, you know. And, and, and the, one of the, the best, like, kind of jam scene experiences in those days you could get in the late 90s and and early 2000s, mid, you know, 2003, 4, 5, was the Dead Thing and Larry at Club Donna, where the Dead Thing would play inside stage and then from, like, 7 to 10 or 6 to 9 or whatever it was. And then... And then Larry would do the outside late night, and it was just a sea of hippie-loving people. Those were some good times, but there wasn't a lot of that. Larry was coming to town and feeding, feeding that jam scene, local stuff out of Austin. Olo Spo was a young band. Larry helped Olo Spo get going and like get the agent at Mountain High Music that we had. Uh, and the people really loved Olo Spo as a, as a jam scene band. They really did. They... Uh, yeah, Chris Holt, amazing. I mean, he had a real tray like thing going on. The dude could rip fish, and he he was talented. And but they didn't really dig the jam scene personally. I don't think that was anything a demographic or a vibe or a scene that they wanted to like be pigeonholed into. I remember that being a topic of discussion and a, and, a, and maybe some frustration on their part when all these jam scene people loved them and then they kind of weren't too into it and that that lasted for a while but there was a time where Olospo man they were the they were fucking rocking this town and the Larry Olospo's ties were pretty cool and and that was all in the 2000s and and again like just a lot of Austin was coming in and and in 2006 when I had to come back to help my dad die and, and I couldn't leave my mom and I was like well all right, and that's when I started to get involved. And I had already had time with like going down to Austin. I was already doing stuff at the at the Mercury in 2004, 2005. And I was already already helping some of the promoters doing things. And I used to take care of guys like, you know, Humphreys McGee and Galactic uh, in those days, um, kind of artist hospo stuff. And, and um, but anyway, I worked at the Worth of Mercury on 6th Street for a handful of years in those times as I was in between gigs with Larry or on the road. Because I was doing like 250 dates a year with Larry. But that all kind of navigated. And then I got here in 2006. And, you know, just like a, a local jam scene. I'm talking like every night, you know, like all the time. And, and of course, Deep Ellum was having its tough times in those days. And a lot of it was Lower Greenville. There was some pretty cool stuff going on. The collab crew, man, they were always staple. And I'm so happy to see that they still are. Um uh, much respect and love to the collab crew and all and all their years uh, giving us those Tuesday nights. We had Funky Knuckles on Monday nights, Bernard Wright on Monday nights at Gazellig. We had a time frame where 2006, 7, 8, 9, 10, there was a lot of stuff at Gazellig. And in the lower Greenville area where now you have truck yard, different stuff. I wish we could get some of that live music stuff back, but they, they kind of pushed a lot of that. Uh, um, the Lakewood Bar and Grill, there was the LBG. I used to work there i booked that place and this was right by the lakewood theater one time we mo played the lakewood theater i had put fatty lumpkin at the lbg and we drew a little treasure map for the after party and so the lakewood bar and grill man people might remember that had some good that's a one to mention like that had some good years eight nine ten you know like i lived over there in lakewood and, and worked at the lakewood bar and grill I helped book a lot of the music there i worked the door and uh, try to bring some of the jam scene there put the Greyhounds into this little place, Eric McFadden. Um, 
and then you know Dada start Dada and things to start. Then, then you start seeing some of the stuff come back around at Deep Ellum, which is I uh, love Deep Ellum uh, always, and seeing the cycle of it over the last thirty years has been interesting. But um, thirty plus, fuck, uh, thirty one. Hmm. Anyway, um, but yeah, so you know, to see the scene, you know, in those days, trying to like not only stuff coming through the big stuff, but the local artists working together, and lots. We have a lot of talent here at DF. They always have. Uh, and it's been a pleasure to try to help support that any way I've could over the years and, and, and get musicians to know each other that maybe don't and create those relationships or super groups or help them get opportunity with gigs and then help the Dallas groups get out of Dallas. That was a big part of it, too. And I was trying to bring some bands in and, and you know, for your ear funks and Zoogmas. And I booked the Motet at the Green Elephant in 2008. Hell, I got them for $300. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Wow. Um, Topaz supporting them. Like, this was like, this was, and you know, it was really good to have the green elephant. You had the outside area, you had the green friendly type of vibe. And, um, I love that place. I'm happy to see it still doing its thing, of course. And, um, you know, we had the Greenville area, the Lakewood area, you know, you got the now Deep Bellum and is, is back and forth, of course. The pandemic definitely has messed with everybody, but it, it's been interesting to see the damn scene over the last for me was 2023 and to be kind of i've been in the grind in the trenches since you know 2006 really and and especially that summer and that fall of 2006 and on um right after my father died that spring um i just put my head down and and part of it too was some of these bands coming to town um from oxford or new orleans or jackson or nashville or denver to name a few or Cali, wherever and having them come through and putting them up. And I, you know, I realized the jam scene in those days, we didn't have the numbers, you know, and talking with other promoters, they thought it was a little crazy because, you know, they're booking indie rock or punk rock or hip hop or something else. Or the, you know, the EDM was starting to kind of really come up, you know, I get it. And, and that's what would sell a lot more tickets, you know, and then we'd have a jam scene show with 50 people or 60 people. But I tell you what, that 50 or 60 people sometimes would, would drink that 50 indie rock crew out of the, out of the table. Hmm. You know, the bar rings were, were higher. You know, sometimes that was something that was always interesting to see the bar rings and the jam scene be so astronomically bigger. Um, and then you have your Texas country and all these other different genres and, and scenes, which is cool. But the jam scene here, and not just like on Friday night, you know, I was thinking back in those days, I was like, but every day, man, like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, all the time. And, and, and not just your big shows, you have to go spend $30 on a ticket those days or whatever. But a local band, you could come out and see for five bucks or $10. And, um, you know, and then the sundown popped up and it was like, hell yeah, you know. And at first, Mike was thinking just bar. I was like, put me in coach, I'm ready to go. And he's like, no live music. No live music, just just uh, just uh, bar and lounge, and I was just like, went went went. I've never been more like poodled in my life, hmm. and um, and then over time, the ten to one or ten to two in those days, if we were everyone was pushing it to two, you know, and um, the, the bar openings weren't so good. So I was like, dude, I'm gonna build a little stage and do some live music, and I'm like, hell yeah, let's let's do this. And I, I don't know, maybe like it was ten, you know, maybe right nine ten. I can't remember. I have to talk to Mike about that, but um, and so he, I was like, okay, right on. And so we started having like Future Funk Lounge Tuesdays. I got the Funky Knuckles over there on Mondays for a good couple years, um, and we had the Funky Knuckles Mondays, Future Funk Lounge Tuesdays, where we brought. I was working with Mikey Raj, and that's when we brought in Closey 
and other badass DJs that are doing their thing these days that came in. And, you know, we had such an opportunity in those days working with Mike Giraj and, and, and then, of course, Josh Smith starts doing his thing, coming up and, and represent, which was great. And I was the first to want to high-five him and, like, let's work together. Uh, and I had some time there, Andrew, where I was able to – I mean, I'm, I'm exhausted with all that now. I'm just getting too old and to, to want to try to do all that jazz. But where I was, you know, helping those bands come through and put them in Austin – Fort Worth, Dallas, and Lubbock, mm-hmm. and um, and you know those those years really helped me stimulate the jam scene here locally in Dallas just by some of that opportunity outside of the area that allowed me to get them to come through. John Larue. Well, so then you, I, I'm sure stuff happens in between, but then you open Deep Elm Art Co., which you know has a Grateful Dead insignia right in some of the logos, and it's definitely the the jam band Mecca, a lot of bands wouldn't even have a place to play, maybe. What was the reasoning behind that? You know, it's <laughs> kind of a fun story. Gary and I are, are obviously music fans. Uh we're we're I, I say music festival junkies, and people don't like that word junkie because it has such a negative connotation. But we we really love that scene and that vibe uh of a group of people coming together that are again like-minded you know that there's there isn't a stranger at a music festival because you're all there for the same lineup everybody you already know everybody kind of likes the same thing it's neat uh and the art that goes along with that the vendors so we'd always kind of kicked around the idea since our first Bonnaroo in 2012 I think it was like yeah it'd be so cool to have a space like this that doesn't go away on Sunday you know what an interesting concept <laughs> like have a, have a festival type space with that vibe that that exists year round and and we always joked about like yeah it'd be so cool to build a place and uh we we own a restaurant concept called socal tacos and we had one restaurant at the time which has since closed um but we were looking for another location and a friend said hey go look at this 3200 commerce street uh in deep Ellum. might be a good spot for socal and I pulled up and saw that it was the Arco building and immediately said, oh, hell no. Like, it's the Arc. Like, that building is, it was in Bottle Rocket. I've driven past it thousands of times and always wondered, what's what's an Arco? What is that? What's going on there? Hmm. And uh, and then, you know, we get our first glimpse inside and it was dirt all over the floor. Uh, you know, just a total mess. The backyard was uh, a sty. The outbuilding, well, the pavilion was an outbuilding. It was more of a, a drug den than anything else and, and quasi-shelter. Um, it was just really, really rough to start with. And it wasn't that I wasn't interested in, in transforming that space into, you know, uh, something else. It was that it seemed sacrilegious to make it into a restaurant, especially, you know, off the beaten path. It would have been kind of difficult to garner attention down there as a restaurant. Mm-hmm. So I, I immediately told the guys that I was touring the property with, I said, no, I, I wouldn't put my restaurant here. But if I were you guys, I would do something like this. And I kind of started describing like, you know, stage at this end and a bar and the opportunity to have food trucks outside and make the yard a, a nice oasis that's colorful and vibrant with art everywhere. Because it already says art coat on the building. Why would you ever want to change that? Mm-hmm. I think someone in the neighborhood would probably be pretty pissed off if the art coat building became you know, some bougie pinky up type restaurant or bar. I, it just was in my mind that this just kind of resonated. So I parted with ways with those guys that day, you know, just 
not really thinking anything else of it. Like, wow, what a cool space. That, that would be such a neat thing. Uh, and then about six days later, Carrie and I were driving out of town um, with kiddos in the car and we got a call from those guys and they said, hey, we want to do that. We'll do that thing you're talking about. We don't want to do a restaurant. We don't want to try and, you know, build a nightclub down here. We really like the idea of what you're talking about, having, you know, something that's art centric and, and going with what's already there. And uh, I've never done anything like that. You know, Carrie's never done anything like that. It was it was always kind of a, a what if, if we could, maybe, you know, pipe dream type thing. And uh, there it was like actually an option in our laps that, that we never considered, you know? I mean, between the day that I walked out of that place and the day that we got that phone call, you know, we talked about it, but it was like, more of just that like fantasy like yeah that would be pretty neat mm -hmm. and then when we got that call it was like well this is probably what we should do you know like if it's if it's something that they're interested in we should probably just see where it goes at the very least so um we insisted on being able to buy into the properties so that we had some some rug underneath our feet that couldn't be pulled out um and uh Kind of the rest is history, so to speak. But uh, that, that it used to be a parts warehouse. That's one of my favorite things about that building is you can still see the path and the shelf and the path and the shelf and the path and the shelf all the way across the floor, uh, and then where the front counter used to be. So when we had the opportunity to come in and like you know paint the floors or you know, do a whole bunch of stuff, I got to give credit to Mike Schroeder because he was the one that was like, nobody cares what your floors look like, dude. No one cares. <laughs> Don't don't waste time and money on the floor. <laughs> we got the perfect idea because what we have here is pretty cool. And he's like, yeah, it, you know. And, and again, no one cares, and it tells a story. And I was like, you're absolutely right. Like we won't we won't change that. So, um, it's fun to have those kind of reminders of like, you know, art is is one of those things that kind of uh, shows itself in the strangest places sometimes you know and and i don't look at our floor and think well that's art you know but <laughs> but it tells a story and, and, and it tells the story of the art co that was the parts co that was you know a, a, a thriving business for many years before it sat there completely dormant for about 30 and mm -hmm. uh it's just been fun to breathe new life into that space and to uh to get to know some of the, the spirits that are still there mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think our resident ghost has kind of eased up on us a little bit since we first moved in. We have less power turning on and off and right. flickering and things like that. But I think we made him happy. We honored the space as best we could. <laughs> right. Leland Crasher. Last question. Where do you see the future of jam, the jam scene in Dallas? I think the future of jam is, is in an interesting place around the nation and, and world right now in general. Um, bands aren't really doing the same tour grind that they were pre-covid um and it's it's changed a lot uh where you know play the 150 shows a year and be on the road forever type thing is, is not really the model anymore so i feel like um you know if you look there, there's different bands um one that's coming to mind right now is like La special where they're from the northeast you know they they are um doing something really unique but accepted by the jam scene um they're not exactly a jam band but they improvise here and there but the the vibe that they create is very much in the theme of jam and so i feel like the jam scene here is going to be leaning more into that i feel like um there will still be a lot of improv there'll still be the dead oriented style either band you know cover bands 
um, playing it at some of the highest levels in the country, right? I mean, we're, we're very spoiled here with, with the bands we have. Um, so I think that lane will continue to develop and mature and grow and um, curate. But from like our perspective as Mojo and other people in our kind of lane are coming up behind us. Um, I think it's going to be a lot more oriented around kind of what I touched on earlier, where the most successful jam bands have good songs. They have good things to be able to go back and listen to. And then they improvise from that structure. Um, and I feel like the Dallas jam scene will lean a lot more into that if it wants to see growth and success than just straight up leaning on to improvisational jams and live shows. So I think the future of the jam scene in Dallas is much more oriented around um, bands like us and others getting into studio situations and presenting really catchy, crunchy grooves um, in minute forms or palatable forms that the current algorithm and, and world likes with social media drawing people in to the jam scene without them maybe knowing it's a jam scene and then they come to our show and it's like holy what they're they that's the song that i heard on instagram that was a 90 second clip or something and now they it's it's are they still playing the same song mm. and it's 15 minutes you know we're we i think we're gonna sneak jam onto people more than we're gonna be able to say like hey we're a jam band you know i yeah, think we're I, gonna I, have to draw them in john larue well so okay so i mean everyone i've talked to has said that deep elm art company has become the jam base kind of like spot as it were how how do how do you feel about the jam band scene now that you've had our open for a while like the state of it oh i think it's, it's a lot stronger and before we even opened i would say um you know uh, mike schroeder with granada has been fostering that scene for a while uh before granada even with cd world and that's where i, I got a ton of my uh, Grateful Dead uh, recordings. Well, I almost call them bootlegs. They're not bootlegs. They're licensed, allowed recordings. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, but I got a ton of those from from there, and and learned about other bands from from that shop uh, over there on Greenville. And then you know, with him moving into the Granada space, and then into Sundown, uh, he's he's been instrumental in bringing uh, no pun intended <laughs> in bringing music to to town. That music that I love. And breaking in new bands. I mean, seeing pigeons playing ping pong on the sundown stage, like yes. was the pivotal awesome. show for me personally. Yeah, that's just one example. You know, that's just <laughs> yeah. But I think I think because of his efforts, then that lays the groundwork for a jam grass artist like Billy Strings to come to Artco for his first time in Dallas and go Artco bomb factory toyota music factory and i don't know where he's going to be next but i wouldn't be the least bit surprised to hear like american airline center or uh, starflex or something you know yeah 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 uh, of similar size thrown into that mix uh so it's the, the scene has definitely grown by leaps and bounds just in the last 20 years um i say probably 25 years thanks to mike really and, and to mike Kirkman as well uh, working right alongside him you know mike was in in austin um going to school and then was you know in contact with so many great jam bands there uh austin's always had a little bit more you know jam band scene than we have uh and bringing so many of those guys to dallas curvin has been instrumental in that uh and and to continue to foster that and to promote things like you know jam crews and uh the wakarusa festivals and, and things like that that bring those big acts close to us um within you know a short drive it's been really awesome to have those folks in the scene. It, it makes a big difference, man. It really does. Mm -hmm. 
Um, last question. Um, how do you see the future of the jam band scene in Dallas? Well, I think it's only going to get better. I mean, I, you know, we have the proof there is in, in these younger acts uh, and even the older acts that are bringing out young crowds. Uh, for our forgotten space stuff, you know, we see several folks there in their 20s. Mm -hmm. uh, and that that's encouragement, to say the least. To see Billy Strings, you know, selling out big spots like Toy Music Factor or uh, Bomb Factory, that definitely shows that there is a demand for this uh, in our, our scene. And I think it's just going to keep growing. There's 8 million people in Dallas almost here in the DFW Metroplex. You got 8 million people, and some of those people are going to be jam band fans. Yeah. It's just yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you know amazing bands like snarky puppy like those guys uh, they well i don't know that i would call them a jam band i you know they have that um jazz funk jam fusion thing going on uh and, and the funky knuckles and you have so many other great acts that that are in that that vein um i, I don't think it's going anywhere I mean, it's it's just going to keep getting stronger, and I think we're going to see uh, more crossover, more genre crossovers like you've seen with the bluegrass scene already. Uh, I think you've already seen it with the electronic scene where you have the, the jamtronic, we have instrumentation and electronic components where a lot of the electronic stuff seems very scripted. You're seeing more instrumentation there and more collaboration and, and stretching again of the, the music. Um, and going off script. I'm just excited to see what what people come up with because there really is no limit to that. You know, the, the jazz right. jazz scene is really what birthed jam. I mean, I think that everyone would agree with that. The improvisational, conversational style of playing music uh, really was, was born with jazz uh, and, and the blues to some extent, you know, with call and response, but it doesn't stop there you know it, it's gone in every single direction since then so it's it's really neat to see those influences play out across different genres kenny withrow what's your view of the state of the dallas jam scene today well i mean there's probably better people to ask you know i think i'm gonna ask you know, them too <laughs> uh, well i mean some younger folks you know i'm and i'm hoping you know like I said, I bet there's bands we don't know about yet around right now. Right. You know, there's that guitar trio. They opened for us for New Bohemians. Like, hell, that's been, I was before COVID and shit. That's been a while. I don't remember the names of those guys, but I mean, right now it's definitely uh, a lot of forgotten space and it's a lot of mojo and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, the jam music I play happens a lot at, at the All Good. And I put together, you know, like when New Bohemians play, I always have people sit in and we just improvise, you know, New Bohemians are still improvising vessel, mm -hmm. you know, we play at the all good a lot. And I put together different things like this bluegrass band called Poor Devils and stuff like that. And there's, you know, there's the jazz improv. That's the thing you got to mention is that a lot of the jamming now is a different kind of jamming. It's the jazz jamming, jazz gospel jamming. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's that whole like other thing. In Dallas, yes. that's like at the Freeman. I think it's fertile ground right now, and it's pretty exciting. You know, that kids are going to figure out what to do. You know, and yeah, I think it's I think some shit's about to happen. <laughs> Leland Crasher. I think the future of jam is is in an interesting place around the nation and, and world right now in general. Um, bands aren't 
really doing the same tour grind that they were pre-COVID. Um, and it's it's changed a lot uh, where, you know, play the 150 shows a year and be on the road forever type thing is, is not really the model anymore. So I feel like, um, you know, if you look, there, there's different bands. Um, one that's coming to mind right now is like La Special, where they're from the Northeast. You know, they they are um, doing something really unique, but accepted by the jam scene. Um, they're not exactly a jam band, but they improvise here and there. But the the vibe that they create is very much in the theme of jam. And so I feel like the jam scene here is going to be leaning more into that. I feel like um, there will still be a lot of improv. There'll still be the dead oriented style, either band, you know, cover bands um, playing it at some of the highest levels in the country. Right. I mean, we're, we're very spoiled here with with the bands we have. Um, so I think that lane will continue to develop and mature and grow and um, curate. But from like our perspective as Mojo and other people in our kind of lane are coming up behind us. Um, I think it's going to be a lot more oriented around kind of what I touched on earlier, where the most successful jam bands have good songs. They have good things to be able to go back and listen to. And then they improvise from that structure. Um, and I feel like the Dallas jam scene will lean a lot more into that if it wants to see growth and success than just straight up leaning on to improvisational jams and live shows. So I think the future of the jam scene in Dallas is much more oriented around um, bands like us and others getting into studio situations and presenting really catchy, crunchy grooves um, in minute forms or palatable forms that the current algorithm and, and world likes with social media drawing people in to the jam scene without them maybe knowing it's a jam scene and then they come to our show and it's like holy what they're they that's the song that i heard on instagram that was a 90 second clip or something and now they it's it's are they still playing the same song yeah. and it's 15 minutes you know we're we i think we're gonna sneak jam onto people more than we're gonna be able to say like hey we're a jam band you know i yeah, think we're I, gonna I, have to draw them in i mean like you were saying i feel like there is a little bit of a stigma against it uh, for some people and they're just I think they're just thinking about the Grateful Dead or like yeah. one band and it's just it's just it's it's blossomed into five million other things like all the rest of music mashing together so Michael Curvin you know I hope we can continue to carry the torch here that we were certainly in a much better position and Arco's a hub of course Arco's a hub I mean I I was able to take all my years a decade a, a good decade everything in my I had over my years to bring to the table for John and Carrie to get this amazing place off the ground and have it have a jam scene hub for the South, not just Dallas was my vision on it too. You know, as far as the scene here in Dallas, I, I mean, I think we're, we're trying to rebound from the pandemic. I, you know, I think we're in a good place and um, we have such an amazing group of artists in this DFW Metroplex. And I think the more we work together, the better we are. Yeah, that's my story. I'd like to thank all my guests this week. Kenny Withrow, John LaRue, Michael Curvin, Chad Kakuza, and Leland Cratcher. And this week we had Ice Cold Fatty never before heard from Trimore Mojo. You can check out the Dallas Famous podcast every week on Deep Elm Radio, Sundays at 1, and then rebroadcast Tuesdays at 1. And then a couple weeks later, I put them all up on all the podcast places. So please check it out, review, rate, like, share, 
play it a hundred times. I don't know. It's been fun. I hope you dig it. <laughs>